Hello, and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. Normally, just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about famous women in history or women in history that should be more famous. <laughs> Absolutely. We have a very special guest here with us today, Barbara Savage. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you, Katie and Allie. And thank you for all your good work trying to spread the word on women's history. Yes. And we're, we're so happy to have you. Barbara is a historian and professor emeritus of American Social Thought and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's here with us today to talk about her latest book, Merce Tate, The Global Odyssey of a Black Woman Scholar. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, um, I have for the last 25 years or so taught African-American history at the University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia. And I have enjoyed doing that and enjoyed interacting with students and I've also been able to write about African-American history in the, in the 20th century. I grew up in Virginia, actually, and, and then uh, moved to Washington, D.C. after college and went to law school uh, there and then worked on um, worked on Capitol Hill, uh, worked for the Children's Defense Fund and had a midlife crisis, an early one, I'd like to think, uh, and decided that I wanted to move uh, towards uh, both teaching and writing. And so I, you know, took that chance and ended up being able, thankfully, to go to graduate school uh, in, in history and then to to take up this opportunity, I think the privilege of teaching and writing 20th century African-American uh, history. So I come you know, to the work with um, a fair mind, amount of passion um, and a sense of mission for the history and for the opportunity to teach it, to research it and to write it. And this book is is one manifestation of that and of that work. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So as we like to do, uh, we have a cocktail to introduce for your book. Um, So this is obviously called the Merce Tate. And I wanted it to be kind of like a fun cocktail with a lot of ingredients from all over the world. So there is gin, Amaro, Nonino, Amaretto, a splash of lemon juice, and then topped with champagne. Excellent. (laughs) Thank you very much. And uh, I look forward uh, to trying that myself. And thank you for including the champagne, which was, um, in fact, her favorite drink. Mm. So thank you very much. Absolutely. (laughs) So before we dive super deep into your book, we always like to set the scene for our listeners. What time period does this book take place? And what was life like for women and especially Black women at this time in history? Yes. So the book basically traces Tate's life and she's born in 1905 and then lives to 1996. So her life uh, both conveniently and I will say in ways that exhausted me in working on it, spans the entirety of the 20th century. But when she was born in 1905 in rural Michigan um, to a family of homesteaders, a, a family of, of farmers, uh, she somehow got in her mind that she wanted, wanted to travel the world, but that she also eventually uh, wanted to be a teacher and soon and soon after that to be a scholar. This was a, kind of an audacious set of ambitions because this was a time when even among Americans in general, literacy rates were low, the access to college education was low, and certainly the aspiration to become 
a, you know, a doc, to have a doctorate and to become a, a formal scholar was non-existent in particular for black um, men and women and in particular women. So it was a, it was a really, a, a real uh, act of self-invention for her to even imagine herself um, into this profession. She graduated from college in 1927 in Michigan and had trained there to be a high school history teacher, which she saw as the first step to that. And then uh, found that Michigan, a fairly progressive and liberal state, was not hiring um, black high school teachers. They would not hire her. And so she was forced to leave Michigan and move to Indianapolis in order to um, to begin her work, um, you know, that way. So that gives you some sense of this kind of of the race of the racial attitudes and the prejudice and the restrictions on getting an education, particularly for women and for African Americans in that period. Having a college degree in 1927 was a rarity, and certainly even more rare for um, for black women. So that's, you know, that's the, I guess, sort of a quick glimpse of of the kind of personal circumstances um, that surrounded her decision to to go into teaching and eventually later into writing. And I can say more about that as we as we move along. She was born in, in the heart of Jim Crow, basically, mm-hmm. of the time um, she said that was rife with both race and sex discrimination. And that was, an, I think, an accurate way to, ref, you know, to reflect that. Mm-hmm. Now, when she's first starting out and she decides that she's going to go into academia, she's going to get an education, was there any kind of resistance from her family trying to protect her and being like, I'm a little scared for you. Like, <laughs> is this going to work out? Or were they just super supportive of her? It's a mixed record, I think. And it's one of the questions that I bring to the book, because I think and that's a, it's a really good question, because I think her mother was protective of her and also like many parents would have wanted her to stay closer to Mm -hmm. stay in Michigan and not have to leave and to kind of be out in the you know in the world the person who was most encouraging to her was actually an older sister who was about 10 years older and she had an opportunity to to get some education and so she was always very supportive uh, of her and I think like most Black families, the commitment to educating young Black people was very strong and very deep and was reinforced everywhere at school, at church, in community. And I think she was a beneficiary of that. But I think that you ask a really important question because for her mother, I think the the bigger worry was that... Um, that there wouldn't be a place for her, even if she got all of the education that she was trying to get, that she saw more clearly as an older Black woman, the kinds of restrictions that she had known in her life. She was born in 1875. Tate, Merce Tate was born in 1905. So a, a difference, even as Tate is also born into uh, the beginnings of some move toward towards opening up education to African-Americans. But that's a very insightful question. Mm -hmm. And now you had mentioned how it was really rare, right, to have a college degree in the 1920s as it was. She had to leave her home state to be able to pursue her profession. What other roadblocks did she come upon during her career? Uh, She came at every step and every stage of her career, she 
ran into obstacles. And to her credit, she refused to to give in to those. And so, for example, when she came up with this idea that she wanted to get a doctorate or wanted to move into to graduate study, um, the first thing was that she didn't have the money to mm-hmm. do that. And so she was able to go to Oxford in the 1930s and get a graduate degree in international relations. So she was there 1932, 1935, and she was able to do that with the support of her Black women's sorority. So the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority had established a $1,000 international study abroad fellowship for Black women who otherwise would not have had the opportunity to do that. And that's how she was able to get to Oxford. It was not enough money to keep her there. So she had to hustle and find other ways, uh, you know, to do that. Um, so, and at every step, every stage, we find her being helped. And she said this herself over and over again, that her entire career, because she does go on to be quite successful, as we'll see, she owed to the intervention of older women, both black and white, mm-hmm. um, because for her to get to Oxford, Required not only the financial support of her, of her sorority, it also required references from white teachers where she'd gone to college, other people who could speak for her. And then once she was at Oxford, she also had to be welcomed into a community of white women there, small community, uh, to work with her to make sure she was able to get the degree that she went to get, which he succeeded in doing in 1935 and and, and received a graduate degree in international relations, becoming the first Black American to get a degree from Oxford. Mm, But but I don't want to, and I also want to say that she was also, uh, she was brilliant. Um, she uh, She was all of the things that people say about strong, independent women, usually uh, with a snarl in that she was bold and irrepressible. She was not afraid to ask for what she wanted or what she thought she needed. And she also almost always never took no for an answer. Well, we love women like that here. So <laughs> <laughs> we need more of them. Yeah. <laughs> so she goes to Oxford, but obviously your book um, is called A Global Odyssey. So she does a lot more traveling. Where else did she go? And does she reflect upon how she's treated as a woman of color in these various countries? He traveled uh, the world uh, solo for the most part. Mm-hmm. Even when she was at Oxford in the 1930s, she used that as a base to travel widely in, in Europe. But the but the real adventures of her, her travel began in the 1950s when she was one of the original or one of the first Fulbright scholars, you know, the U.S. program that funds uh, study abroad. And to her credit, rather than going to Paris, which she had already been to, she decided to go to India uh, and to go to uh, a university near Calcutta. And so she was there for a full year and she used that as a base to travel all over Southeast Asia and Asia and the Pacific. Um, and so this was really just the beginning of her travels. Uh, what I what I have learned from her life is that we are familiar with the concept that African-Americans who go to Europe or travel abroad 
immediately feel the relief from the day-to-day -day of American racism. She doesn't talk about it so explicitly in those terms, but that is in fact the case for her as well. And I argue in the book that it was only when she was traveling with that little blue passport was she able to fully enjoy the privileges of being an American, which were still being denied her and other Black people, you know, here in the United States at a time of Jim Crow segregation, discrimination, all of that, not to mention, uh, you know, prejudices against her because she was a woman. So she deployed her Americanness in that way. And she was someone who was gifted with the ability to make friends and hold on to relationships over over time. And so we see her traveling sort of from one safe port to another, being handed off by word of mouth or reference, which is how uh, a woman would need to have traveled at, you know, at that time. And so um, she was a woman who was uh, identifiably not white. Uh, and identifiably black. And uh, I think that um, she was, for the most part, well received because she was an American mm -hmm. uh, in those in those settings. And I think that the traveling was one of the more vexing aspects of writing about her because she traveled all of her life everywhere, went around the world twice solo, once east to west, once west to east. And so as her biographer, I felt some obligation to try to retrace some of her steps because she talked about travel as being really central to her work as it was as a scholar, but also the highlight of her personal life. So I've followed her to Oxford and India uh, Thailand. Um, and, uh, and so that's been a real, it's, it's, it's been a real challenge and also an opportunity of doing this work on her, but I felt I needed to go see some of these places, uh, for myself. Absolutely. That's one of the questions we always ask. Yep. People, <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> <we're> just, <laughs> no, we love yeah. it. Yeah. Yes. So I've been, yeah, I've been, a, and she, I, I, as I said, I've tried to retrace her steps and I was literally able to do it in India because she was obsessive in the way that many academics are. And so she kept really copious notes on where she went and what she was doing. And, uh, and I also was able to spend a year at Oxford uh, stu uh, studying, writing and interacting with students there. And since it was a place that she'd lived for three years uh, you know, really formative for her. That was also a very important experience uh, for me. And I was able to go from there to India uh, and back a little bit more conveniently than flying <laughs> from Philadelphia, but it's, yeah. it's yeah. still, it's still a long haul. It's still a long haul. Uh, but I learned so much uh, from the travel um, and really came to admire her traveling at a time before ATMs, before electronic transfers of money, for all the things that make travel so much easier um, these days. And before flights, actually, because her first three or four trips abroad were all, you know, by sea. Um, and it was a trip to India in the 1950s was her first international flight. First of many, I should say. <laughs> So as her biographer, I'm sure you came across so many little stories and anecdotes from her life that you wanted to tell in this book. Was there any one in particular story that really stuck out to you as like a benchmark of this explains who Merce is? 
Well, I've already talked a little bit. This is very hard. This is a very hard question yeah. to answer because I've got a book full of full of them. Yeah. Um, but I do think um, that in her travels in India and during that period, we see her really uh, struggling both physically to do that. I saw how tough she was during the travel and during the times when she was disappointed or when she did not was not able to achieve what she wanted to do as easily as possible. And some of that was, you know, at, at Oxford, because it was a very different and it is remains a very different kind of training. And so she was there and she took an orals exam for her degree. And the first time she took it, she didn't she didn't pass. And she was mortified by it. I mean, literally so much of her sense of herself uh, depended on her being recognized for what everybody else had seen her as, which is as a brilliant student. And so she also not only thought she was failing herself personally, but she felt like she was failing other Black women. And so I have these um, poignant letters from her pleading with people at Oxford not to hold her failure against other Black women who might come after her. Mm -hmm. And uh, she then succeeded the next year. She got the degree. And so we have a happy ending there. But it was a moment where I could, I had a sense both of, again, of her, of her toughness and her strength, but also her commitments and her ability to see her own life in the context of trying to help other Black people in general, including especially other young Black women, uh, you know, like her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it's so nice to see people who don't uh, want to live in a vacuum of their own self, you know, who understand that like what I am doing is very big and it's very important for people after me. And it's it's such an Im- immense pressure. <laughs> so I would love to know a little bit more about her work that she's doing. Uh, what exactly is she researching and what does she end up teaching at Howard University? All right, at Howard University, she spends, uh, she gets there in 1942 and joins the history department. So she is what we would now call a diplomatic historian. And she, her work divides into two big categories, if I might um, summarize them. And at first, she was actually very interested in an issue that's still really important to us today, which is disarmament and eventually nuclear disarmament. She was very interested in the ways that um, that nations acquired and used weapons, not just in war, but also as part of of colonizing, of building empires. And so she was very prescient about the that that the the struggle over arms is not truly a, a struggle for self-defense. In many cases, it's a struggle to have the kinds of weaponry and abilities to be able to overtake and to take on um control over lands that are far from you know from from those individual um uh individual countries and so that's kind of what the first work was about and it came out in in the middle of world war ii which was a very important time and then when after the united states had dropped the um the atomic bomb she wrote very passionately about the the necessity for nuclear uh disarmament and so that's the first uh 
a bit of her work. And then the second, the, the second aspect of her work has to do with the Pacific, uh, with Hawaii in particular. I mean, we as Americans in the, at this time, we kind of don't or may not even question how is it that Hawaii, which is that far away, is a state. And so she writes the history of the annexation of Hawaii, which is the first category in the in the 1820s and traces that forward uh, through uh, what we now know, you know, as, as, as the, um, in the 20th century about how Hawaii became a state, but her underlying, and then she continued to do work on other areas in the Pacific, but her underlying concern was with American imperialism. We think of British imperialism, the Spanish and French, but she was really trying to say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, we were implicated and we Americans were doing this uh, also. And if there's a through line that connects all of her work, I would say it was a commitment to anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, and she always linked that with race um, and with, um, you know, and with kind of racist understandings of peoples and the lands in which they which they live. So a real commitment to indigenous people all over the globe. And that's, that is like the 32nd summary of <laughs> someone who wrote five books and gazillions of articles. All of which I had, a lifetime of work. <laughs> yeah. Which almost drove me crazy trying to read it. I did read it all. Uh, and so, but that's about as, that's about as little as I can say about that. <laughs> uh, one thing that I've noticed in the last several years of doing this show is every time I learn about a new woman or I do research on a woman in history, I start to like, learn little things about myself and like these building blocks happen like in my brain as you're at oxford and in india and in thailand and reading all of her books and her papers what did you learn about yourself as a historian it's a it's a it's a creepy uh, process actually to be <laughs> a black woman scholar writing about a black woman scholar uh, <laughs> although i obviously i feel very indebted to her and to other generations of women scholars who came, you know, came before me. Um, but I think that I learned, first of all, that I met someone through her who was more obsessive than I am, which says a lot. Um, but I think more seriously, I think I really did come to appreciate how deep this commitment to education uh, is was is for her and was for me as a child growing up and in some ways it made it easier for me to understand her and her drive and uh, as I said I'm she was born a half a century before I was but we had an overlap in certain ways we we're both born and raised in rural areas which is you know which is somewhat unusual and um, we both had to make kind of strategic decisions at some point in our lives to sacrifice in order to be able to do to do this work. But I think I just came away from the whole project with a sense of the kind of obstacles that she had to to overcome. I now I have no complaints about my work and my uh, career and the kind of privileges that I've had uh, to do the work that she had to struggle so hard to you know, to get. Um, and so I think I, I, I just learned that, um, that I had, it's not so much as I met my match because I do not consider myself a match for 
her. Um, but I do think that being a Black woman scholar helped me understand uh, implicitly certain aspects of her own life and own struggle. Is that is that helpful? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Okay, okay. And since she did die in 1996, did you know about her while she was still alive? Like, how did you find her? And when did you decide, all right, there needs to be a book written about this woman? <laughs> um I did not know her or know of her during her lifetime, even though we overlapped. Uh, we were both in Washington because she was at Howard all that time. And I was I lived in Washington. I was living in Washington, you know, at the, at that time myself. I stumbled into her name because I've done onto her name because I've done so much work in my career at Howard and in its archives. So I had become kind of familiar with a number of, of faculty there. But I really uh, only began to scratch around to think about doing some writing on her as part of a collaborative project I was doing with other scholars. We were trying to to do what I did in this book, which is to reclaim the lives of Black women intellectuals, uh, including, um, you know, including scholars. So I, I owe it all in some ways to kind of a digital accident of kind of begin once digi digitization had happened in terms of journals and articles and books in a much more sophisticated way, it became, it was sort of instantly clear to me that she had this enormous body of work, which I did not know and had not read. So that was the first, that was the first thing that, that, that drew me in. But as part of this project, when I began to kind of sketch out the contours of her life, you know, she went to Oxford, she got a PhD from Harvard, you know, in night in government in 1941, she's doing all of this traveling, she's writing. And I thought, who is this woman? And I was resistant to doing a biography at all on anyone. And so I really did. Um, I, I wasn't, I, I really wasn't, I didn't know that I could actually do a biography. I didn't know that I was, a. I thought biographies, and I do think biographies need to be especially well written. Mm -hmm. If you're going to tell the story, you got to be able to craft a narrative. And, and I had never done that kind of writing before, or never really was interested in doing it. And so my reluctance really had to do with whether I could do it and do it well. I did not want to write a boring book about a fascinating person, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is entirely possible. And I may have done that. I'm not sure. So it was really more, uh, it really required me to dig deep to try to figure out, even though I'm a historian, I'd written other books, but different kinds of books. Mm -hmm. This is my first biography. And so I was very intimidated by the form and by the genre and that was really my reluctance. And then I just felt like she kept pulling me in. And at some point, I feel like she chose me uh, to try to get this story out. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, I just thought, well, what the heck? We might as well give it a try. And here we are, you know, a decade later, here we are. <laughs> so amazing. Well, we are so happy to have you on the show. And I think yes. this book comes out November 21st. Yeah, so, so the like, same day the episode releases. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Oh. Yeah, so everybody go out and get it today. Yeah, that's so fun. And can you tell us a little bit about where people can find you, where they can find the other things that you've written, if you have a website? I do have a website. Uh, and if you... <laughs> 
which I am not, uh, obviously, uh, is not in my head. But if you Google me, if you just mm-hmm. Barbara Savage, uh, University of Penn, University of Pennsylvania, I have a website there that'll pop right up. And if you're interested in the book, you can find it uh, at all of the usual at independent bookstores may need to be ordered, um, maybe on shelves eventually at some point, but certainly through all of the online sources and, and including uh, independent bookstores, which you can reach online. But it is a Yale University Press book. And if you if you also go to their website, the book is there and can be ordered directly through them. Uh, and that might be an easy way to do it. So. Yeah. And we we always suggest uh, requesting it at your local library. Mm-hmm. Please. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because that's very important. Thank you for reminding me to remember that too. Yeah. So. And I think the more people that can even just stumble upon, you know, a black female scholar and learn her story, if the book is there, yeah, it's even yeah. better. It's yes. Thank there. you. Thank you. I agree. I agree with you. And I, I hope that um, that people will understand that scholars are interesting people too. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they now, and they now, that she now has a cocktail name. Yes, for exactly. me, so <laughs> need I say more? So, right. okay. And, you know, we always think about, you know, when a kid goes to write an inspiring essay about a woman in history, it's like, we have enough books on Amelia Earhart, you know, let's get these into the lexicon and have more people writing about <laughs> Merce Tate. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and others, because it's and others. The, the kind of un, the less well-known folks, or as I say, if we move beyond the usual suspects, it just opens up such a wider world because we have people who've led unusually interesting lives. We don't know about them. We don't know about their contributions to the world or to scholarship or to whatever their, you know, their um, interest or profession was. So there's a lot more history to know and a lot more history for somebody else other than me to write. Yeah. Yeah. When we, when we started this show five years ago, the question that we always got is, aren't you going to run out of women? You never will. No. <laughs> you never will. And, uh, yes. So, um, but yes, and and I'm so glad that you're focusing on on women. Actually, I'm, I really am. Even though we're here in the 21st century, and I, I would have liked to thought that, that it wouldn't be as necessary, but is as necessary as as ever. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.